Hello and welcome back to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. You can also find me on Twitter at jchanpharma. Today on the show, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, which is a broad term used to describe neurological conditions that are associated with a decline in brain functions like memory and cognitive abilities as a result of abnormal changes in the brain. According to the World Health Organization, around 50 million people globally have dementia, with 10 million new cases each year. About 60 to 70 percent of dementia cases take the form of Alzheimer's disease, and the risk of you getting dementia increases with age, although scientists believe people can develop dementia even in their 20s or 30s, though symptoms don't really start to show up decades later. It's a very debilitating condition because it worsens over time, and in severe cases, you could lose the ability to perform simple tasks like brushing your teeth, getting dressed, or even speaking. So you can imagine how much suffering there is for the patient as well as for their families and caretakers. So needless to say, it's very important for the scientific community to find ways to prevent and treat this disease. Now, unfortunately, Alzheimer's drug R&D has fared very poorly so far. There hasn't been a drug approved to treat the disease for almost the last two decades. Part of it has to do with the focus on the beta amyloid approach, which is basically designing drugs to mop up beta amyloid, a type of protein that accumulates in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. Pharmaceutical companies have been able to design drugs that do clean up these proteins, but that hasn't really translated into stopping Alzheimer's from progressing. So if that's not working, then what can we do? What's the playbook here? Well, the good news is that there are other companies doing Alzheimer's drug R&D based on other working theories about the disease. Which brings me to my guest for today's show. I am joined by Dr. Charles Stacey, CEO of Saracen, a healthcare company based in Singapore, focusing on brain health. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you, Jonathan. Very nice to be here. Yeah, so it's great to have you on the show to share about yourself, your work at Saracen, and the challenges of developing uh, treatments for brain disorders. Um, so before we get into all of that, how's everything in Singapore recently? Because I know the number of cases of COVID-19 has crept up recently, and um, you know, has that impacted your work or daily life? Yeah, um, it, it clearly has. Um, so Singapore's Singapore's um, Singapore's okay. Um, we, as you know, we uh, we initially got off a very good start, and we were heralded as as the kind of case study in how to do things. Um, and we kept our numbers very low initially. Um, unfortunately, there was a a bit of a pickup of of numbers within the foreign worker dormitories that exist within Singapore, so that saw our numbers come up quite a bit. Um, but they've been able to keep the uh, the numbers under control, and and they've been able to keep the numbers in the uh, in the in the community relatively low. And ultimately, the the fatalities have been very low here as well. And I think that's a, a credit to the very good healthcare system. Um, but we are still on on you know considerable sort of social distancing and circuit breaker. So for us, that means we're all working from home. Fortunately for us, it, you know we're able to do that. Our work is predominantly um, clinical trials, so it's managing um, clinical trials. We're not lab based. We're not doing early early stage discoveries. So we're able to do this um, from home. Um, so our work continues with with some changes to uh 
to the way we do things um, and and shift in priorities. But otherwise, we're we're able to keep working, fortunately. Mm, yeah, that's great. Um, other than Singapore, you still have operations in the US and Australia and other places, right? We do, yeah. So as of, um, so we moved our headquarters from the US to Singapore in 2018, so two years ago now. Um, but we still maintain an office in the US. Um, since coming to Singapore, we've actually opened offices in, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and we're in the process of opening an office now in, in Shanghai, in China. Great, yeah. Let's talk about I guess just a, a little bit more on COVID-19 um, because I, I basically uh, I feel like the focus, like the global focus has been on COVID-19. Has that Absolutely. taken away sort of like the resources and uh, R&D for uh, your company uh, and your areas like dementia or Alzheimer's? Because, um, you know, one of the drugs that has been talked about a lot on the news has been uh, hydroxychloroquine. And I, I hear, you know, reports of people who actually use that drug for, you know, other conditions like malaria or uh, lupus, they, they've kind of run out of, of that kind of drug because everyone's trying to use it for COVID-19. Yeah, it, it's, it's been a really funny time. I mean, it's um, so in terms of the the focus, um, you know, we've definitely seen you know, so healthcare come to the, the sort of front and center of people's minds. And, and whilst the majority of that is focused on, on, on COVID and infectious disease, there's definitely been um, a sort of a, a sort of renewed interest in, in, in life sciences in general, be that, you know, biotech or pharmaceuticals. So I think that is that's got to be good for the sector in general. I think people now recognize that, you know, these drugs um, take an awfully long time. There's been an increased awareness around the timelines of drug development, the complexity of drug development, further insights into, you know, what it takes to do clinical trials. Um, of course, it's everybody's dinner conversation, um, you know, it's and it's in all the newspapers. So I think it's that's got to generally be a very good thing for the industry. Um, with regards to us and in a neuroscience space, it's definitely the uh, the first question we get when we speak to stakeholders or to or to investors. Now they say, oh, so uh, you're a biotech company. Are you doing anything in COVID? Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> the answer is generally not. Um, but it's it's definitely flavor of the month. Um, but I, I don't think it's dist- I don't think it's detract distracting from from our work. I don't think it's taking resources from that. Um, you know, I think it's uh, I think what's actually being done is is being has been remarkable in the way that um, companies and and governments were able to deploy you know resources um, you know so quickly to to enable and facilitate the the development that's happening. Um, you know, I think the what we've suffered from has just been, you know, the general um, complexity and, and difficulties faced by everybody. The, the challenges of working from home, the challenges of not um, being able to travel and, and meet with stakeholders, be those clinical trial investigators and sites or partners or investors or whoever. Um, I think that we, like everybody else, have suffered from those. You know, we are a, a a private biotech company, so you know we and um, we're venture backed, so we you know we have to think about cash flows and and meeting with investors. So you know we're fortunate that we are you know we're well supported by by two very large investment groups, um, and and we raised money in 2018. So that's not such a concern for us. But we know that many smaller biotech companies, especially in some of the uh, you know. So the smaller companies that you know maybe have less access to cash or are, are loss making due to the nature of their programs purely in development with no revenue yet um you know some of those companies have really struggled and we've seen valuations drop significantly within um within the public markets for those for those companies 
Mm, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, it's great to hear that、um, you know your work has not been interrupted that much.、Um, and you know, this is a good segue to you know what we were talking about today, which is、um, your company, Saracen.、Um, but before we get into that,、uh, you know, I'm sure listeners would love to get to know you more. So, could you share about、um, you know your journey of first becoming a physician and and then getting into VC and now running your own、uh, healthcare company? Yeah, absolutely. So,、um, so as you quite rightly said, I, I, I started off life as a as a physician. So I trained at a King's College in in London.、Um, and during the course of my my medical training, I actually did my undergraduate、um, combined with my training in in neurosciences. So neurosciences was my my first love, if you like, and and my research and my first publications were in the neuroscience and and, and brain research space.、Um, In my medical training, I specialised in surgery, so I、uh, I moved into surgery, particularly looking at sort of reconstructive and、um, and microsurgery surgical techniques,、um, and practised for about eight years、um, in, in the UK.、Um, I stepped out of practice、um, in 2018、um, to start my first company. So I started a medical device company,、um, developing and ultimately、um, commercialising. Um, two products that I developed through the course of my clinical practice, and that really gave me my first taste for、um, industry and my first taste of life outside of clinical medicine,、um, and、um, it got me hooked. So I moved from there. I did my MBA at, at the、um, at the London Business School and, and part of it at the Wharton School, and I moved into venture capital,、um, and in particular within venture capital, investing in early stage life science companies.、Um, And the nature is, you tend to have your area of core interest, and of course, for me, that was the neuroscience space.、Um, so, after a small stint with a fund in the U.S., I joined、um, a large fund in Europe that invests globally,、um, but a fund called Inventages.、Um, and I particularly had a, a, a keen interest and, and role in, in the brain health platform there.、Um, and、um, Saracen was one of the companies that、um, we were investing in. We were, in fact, the lead investor. Um, and I represented so,、um, our fund on the board.、Um, and then in 2014, 2015, I actually stepped in as, as CEO to take the company through what we saw as the next stage, and hopefully the kind of the、uh, you know the the final stage of, of drug development for the、uh, for the core program, which is the program Tricaprolin. So I've been in、um, in this role、um, as president and CEO since 2015. Um, initially in the U.S., but as I said, moved the company to、um, to Singapore in 2018.、Mm, okay, yeah, and I, I was told that there was a connection between、um, you know you and our previous guest, Chimet, right? So, Inventages is that there, there's a connection、uh, yeah. with Inventages and Nestle, and then、um, through that somehow it's connected to Chimet. Is that right? Yeah, so we know we are Christian through exactly that that way. So you're right. So it's um. So, Inventages is the biggest LP for Inventures is the Nestle Group. So they do a lot of the、uh, the investing、um, alongside Nestle, and of course, in in the past,、um, Chimed has had some、um, collaborations and JVs with the Nestle Group as well. So it's a、uh, so and as, so we know so we know Chimed through that,、um, and and Nestle is interesting because Nestle have a have a growing and, and increasingly well recognised interest in the healthcare space.、Um, most people know of Nestle for being a food group that make breakfast cereals and candy bars, but actually, you know, a core part of their their business and, and a significant part of their growth is is the pharmaceutical and life science space,、um, and you know both. 
um, Saracen through the investment of Inventages, but also Kymed, a, a good example of that. Hmm, I see. Um, your company, Saracen, um, as I understand, the company used to be called Axera and yep. now has rebranded into Saracen. And um, as you mentioned now, uh, you've moved your base to Singapore. Um, so what was the idea behind the rebranding and uh, the move to Asia? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, let me um, let me answer that by by giving a little bit of a walk through the history. We can elaborate on on, on some of the pieces at the moment, but just to give you a walk through and, and um, about the company. So, the company was founded in two thousand and one. So, the company is you know almost twenty years old now. Um, founded like many biotech companies, you know where the people were based. Um, the founding scientist was based at the time in Colorado. Um, he developed a novel way for um, for treating Alzheimer's disease, um, a sort of novel mode of action. He developed a uh, a, a, a novel way of, of targeting the disease and a compound with which to do that. Um, and around that was formed um, the company, which you quite rightly said was called Xera at the time. Um, and for the first you know, decade or so of the company's life, um, you know, the did what sort of classic biotech companies do, which is develop a you know ever increasing series of of bigger and, and more robust um, studies, initially animal studies and non clinical studies, and then moving into um, you know human studies to show the efficacy of this approach and this particular compound in in treating um, Alzheimer's disease in particular. Um, it was actually during that stage, very early on, that Inventages and the Nestle Group. Um, became aware of the company um, and took a, a significant um, interest in, in financially supporting the company and, and, you know, became the biggest shareholder of the company, which they continue to be today. Um, but through that, through the course of that work, so, you know, we gained more and more confidence and, and saw ever increasing efficacy in our compound um, and were able to take it through some very compelling phase three, um, phase two studies. We can talk about about the mechanism in a moment. Um, but a series of phase two studies which showed efficacy and ultimately planning for the phase three program, which, as you know, is the is the kind of the uh, the pivotal trials and ultimately the final step of, of drug development. Um, and as we came to, the, to that stage, you know, we had to think about um, both the clinical components, but also the operational components for how to run and execute a phase three study. Um, for us, our, our compound is a, is a very unique one in the sense that we've shown, um, unlike any other compound in development for Alzheimer's disease, we've shown that there's a particular genetic component to how it works. The, our last three studies have shown that it particularly works in a in a um, in a particular genetic profile. Um, that profile um, constitutes about 50% of the Alzheimer's patients in the US. So about half of Alzheimer's patients have the profile that we target, and therefore um, our drug will be efficacious for them. But in Asia, that percentage is much higher. So in Asia, the percentage um, is around about 65, 70%, and in parts of China, it's up to 85%. So a very much more enriched population. So by definition, that meant for us, it was very important for us to run our clinical trials in Asia. It also meant that ultimately, our market was gonna be bigger in Asia. Um, the other reason for, you know, for us to consider a move to Asia was um, the fact that our raw materials, so the um, the raw materials within our API actually come from from Asia, um, particularly Southeast Asia. So accordingly, we were, you know, we were going to build manufacturing and supply in this part of the world. So it made sense for us to have a team based here. Um, and and ultimately, the other piece that really played very keenly into that was the fact that um, you know we recognised the huge amount of growth that was happening in Asia, um, particularly in China. 
um, and increasingly so. And, and whilst I was in ventures, I was responsible for investments into into China. So I was very aware of the growth and the opportunity that was emerging there and is now very clearly um, resides in China. Um, so the idea of being sat between you know, the two biggest markets, both the US as well as China, um, was very appealing to us, especially given the fact that Alzheimer's disease is is a disease that affects all. It doesn't just affect affluent, you know, um, Westerners. It affects all patients equally. Um, and the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is age. And as we're aware, China has the biggest aging population by number in the world. So um, about 250 million patients in China are over the age of 65. So again, another very important reason for us to be close to to China. And uh, all those things considered, we said, look, you know, um, we need to be uh, we need to be in Asia. This is where our headquarters needs to be. We need to have operational capabilities around the world. Um, but being based in China made sense for us. And consequently, in 2018, we, we considered a number of cities. Um, we considered Hong Kong, where you are. Um, but ultimately, Singapore made more sense for us as a hub, English speaking, the ease to which recruit you know, the, uh, the team and personnel, relocate the team that we had and you know have a, a friendly business environment um with with good good ip infrastructure which is a critical part of of what we do um and also you know from a singapore perspective singapore is very keen to grow this piece of the economy you know singapore is is investing very heavily in in life sciences and pharmaceuticals it's got a, a you know a very um sound scientific base um and and a well-educated population and workforce here so it uh, it made it made sense for us. And two years down the line, uh, we still think it's a good idea. So that's a, a good sign. Mm, yeah, that, that's really good to hear. And I yeah, definitely agree that Singapore is a, a great um, you know biotech hub. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I like to visit Singapore uh, every so often, just to um, you know meet new companies and talk to new people. So it's great that uh, you know we have you here now in Asia, uh, and you know maybe in the future I can come by Singapore and. Um, meet you in person. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's uh, get into Alzheimer's for a little bit because it's been one of the most difficult disease areas to develop drugs for. Um, there's been a long list of companies, including a lot of big pharma's, failing to come up with, you know, effective treatments. And you know, for for whatever reason, at phase two or three development, um, clinical data just isn't good enough, and a lot of it has to do with um, the focus on the beta amyloid theory. So, um, you know, for listeners, these proteins accumulate in the brain and they're thought to play a role in, you know, impairing the cognitive functions of patients. So, you know, from your time as a physician and now working in this, you know, space as a company, I'm curious to know, you know, what your thoughts are behind, um, you know, the challenges in this disease area in terms of drug development and you know, maybe your thoughts on the amyloid theory. Yeah, very, very good question. So uh, just to sort of summarize what you said, and I think you said exactly right, which is, you know, Alzheimer's disease has had an incredibly difficult run over the course of the last, you know, um, 10 years or even, you know, coming up to 20 years now. Um, and it is, it's actually, as, as a disease, it's, I believe, it's, you know, it's in, the, it's in the top 10 of leading causes of death. Um, and the only leading cause of death that doesn't have a drug that slows, cures, or prevents it. Um, you overlay that with the fact that, you know, this is a rapidly growing prevalence of the disease, particularly because, you know, the biggest risk factor, as I already mentioned, is age. Um, so as 
you know, our healthcare systems and our treatments and other diseases get better. We outlive cancers and, and cardiovascular problems and the else, and therefore we all get older. Unfortunately, that directly correlates with our risk of Alzheimer's disease. So you have the perfect storm. You have a lack of drugs um, that, um, you know, can have significant impact on this disease. And, and the last drug approved, at least within the West, um, was memantine, which was approved in 2003. So we're talking almost 20 years ago now, overlaid with the fact we've got this increasing prevalence. So it is a huge social economic uh, um, problem. And, and as you know, there's a huge amount of, of, of um, sort of media attention on the fact that this is, you know, this has a potential to bankrupt healthcare systems because um, it sounds crass, but, you know, the, the nature of this disease is, you know, patients live for an awfully long time, but are hugely dependent and have huge care burdens associated with them. And therefore, um, the cost to healthcare systems and the dependency on care, um, care facilities, but also, you know, lost earnings from from loved ones and carers is, is absolutely colossal. Um, and I think in the US by 2030, they forecast this being in excess of a trillion dollars in terms of costs from, from Alzheimer's disease alone. So it's a massive problem. Um, and and as you said, you know the sort of thing that makes those things worse is the fact that the uh, the the success rate of new drug development has been very very low. And and there's a there was a uh, a, a pivotal sort of paper by Jeff Cummings um, a few years ago that quoted you know a 99.6 percent failure rate. And that definitely feels to be the case when you when you read about this space, um, with 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 a few caveats. And, and you identified the core one, which is, you know, there has been, um, there are two, you know, two proteins, but one in particular that it, that are found in the brain during Alzheimer's disease, and in particular the amyloid protein. So if you do a post-mortem of a patient with Alzheimer's disease, you find this, this amyloid, um, beta amyloid within the brain. Um, it is, you know, it is the pathological hallmark of the disease. Um, and therefore, in light of that, it has gained attention as, you know, the target of choice for um, for Alzheimer's disease, drug development and and, and study. Um, and what we've seen is at least, you know, five, 10 years ago was that, you know, by far the majority, you know, 60, 70 percent of drugs that were being developed were focusing on amyloid as a target, which, you know, just from a from a general drug development perspective is 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 not a good strategy. Right. You always want to have a diversity, diversification of mechanism, especially within a disease like um, with Alzheimer's disease, which is known to have a very heterogeneous clinical presentation um, and therefore, by definition, is likely to have multiple different components happening um, and multiple different, um, you know, com- um, you know, different angles by which to treat this disease. So, you know, I think in hindsight, everything is always a uh, 2020. And we now recognize that that was, um, you know, that was not the way to go. And and unfortunately, that's how it's played out from a development perspective. You know, one by one over the course of the last 10 years, we've seen a huge series of Alzheimer's drugs fail that have targeted the amyloid um, hypothesis. And and in particular, what's really, you know, what's really been the sort of the, the nail in the coffin for that hypothesis has been, you know, we've seen drugs effectively clear the amyloid from the brain, but still have no effect in cognition. Um, I think the general consensus is, look, amyloid is still incredibly important disease. There's no question it's part of the pathophysiology. But is it the only cause? Is it upstream enough within within the, the pathological process that if you remove it, it actually um, you know it actually will resolve or, or stop the progression of the disease? And the answer to that appears to be no. Mm. So you know, we've been doing this now for twenty years, and we've been you know part of a a silent but definitely you know a, a small but definitely growing minority which have been saying, look, you know, there are other things happening, um, and there are other ways to treat this disease, and you know these all warrant um, investigation. Um, and unfortunately, I think within the last three to five years, we've seen that. 
um, you know, with the with the gradual decrease in um, or recognition of you know the flaws within the amyloid hypothesis, the scientific community um, and increasingly the pharmaceutical and, and biotech community are now you know putting much more energy and effort within you know into other targets. Um, and those targets range, right? We, we've seen um, interest in, in tau, which is another protein that um, accumulates within the brain. Um, inflammation, there's um, sort of, uh, there's, there's the, those that address the, the metabolic um, deficit within the, the disease, which, which we do as well. Um, so there's a, a number of other um, targets, which I think are all um, equally valid. And, and to be honest, probably all play a role as well. This is, as I mentioned, a very heterogeneous disease. And therefore, there's probably a number of targets that we should be targeting. Yeah. So uh, Saracen is, you know, as you mentioned, there's there's so many theories and, and focus behind the R&D in this area. And Saracen is, um, as you mentioned, is in the me- metabolic category. So um, you know, focusing on what some media calls the energy theory. So can you yeah. tell us what the energy theory is and how it affects patients with Alzheimer's? Yeah, absolutely. So it's well recognized in Alzheimer's disease that there are a number of sort of biological uh, processes that occur within the brain. And and the big question that's existed for a long time now is, is which is, you know, which is the, uh, which is the chicken, which is the egg, right? What comes first? We know as well that the disease starts very early on. So, um, you know, it's it's now well established, well understood that there are changes that occur within the brain probably as early as 30 years or so before the clinical presentation. So very, very early on, which is pretty staggering. You think about Alzheimer's disease manifesting at the age of 65, 70 years old. That means if a patient is at risk, they could start to develop symptoms within the brain in their 30s and 40s and gradually but silently initially those um, those signs and that pathology gradually accumulate unfortunately killing brain cells until the point at which you know the reserves um, sort of are, are inadequate and um, and the clinical signs and, and symptoms manifest um, as um, you know as Alzheimer's disease in the sort of sixth and seventh decade of life. So it, it's very early on that these things start to change. And, and one of the earliest signs and biomarkers that is shown to exist within the brain is a gradual decrease in the brain's ability to metabolize. So like all the tissues in the body, the, the, the brain tissue metabolizes glucose. And in fact, the brain is the most metabolic organ in the body. You've probably heard this said before, but you know the brain uses the most amount of fuel, and our and, and the fuel that we we use predominantly is um, is glucose, so um, sugar essentially. So the brain is the most metabolic organ in the body. The analogy I like is that it's been said that the brain uses about as much sugar or glucose as the thigh muscles do uh, when you're running a marathon. The difference being that the brain is using that all the time, so it's hugely metabolic and it's using a huge amount of glucose to metabolize all the time. And what's been shown in Alzheimer's disease is that very early on, you start to get a decrease in the brain's ability to metabolize glucose in particular. And that particularly that starts, you know, relatively small, but in particular areas of the brain and those areas of the brain, particularly associated with memory. So the temporal and the parietal lobes of the brain. So it starts in those areas, but it gradually progresses with time and in a very region specific manner. So it's actually and you can do PET scans or you can do an FCG PET scan, which shows it you know, shows the um shows the use of glucose within the brain. You can actually do PET scans um, of the brain in a in a thirty year old patient who's going who's at risk of Alzheimer's disease and who's going to progress to Alzheimer's disease. And you can show these decreased areas of glucose metabolism, and you can follow them over the course of the next thirty years. 
And unfortunately, what you see is those areas get larger uh, and more dense, and they're particularly focused, as I said, in those areas of the brain associated with memory until it eventually manifests. And you get these areas of very dense, called decrease and deficient glucose metabolism, where the brain is essentially dysfunctional. You know, it's not metabolizing, it's not working, and ultimately those cells die. Um, and it's affecting the areas of your memory. So, of course, that just uh, presents as this decreased ability to to remember, to have, you know, the cognition is 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 um, is dysfunctional. And ultimately, those patients have functional um, problems as a result of that. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's 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 well it's well defined. It's actually part of the. Uh, of the US um, Alzheimer's disease diagnostic criteria. So you can actually do it, an FTG PET scan and diagnose somebody's disease based on, on this problem um, with glucose showing up on FTG PET. So the question in light of this, um, you know, in the early 2000s, our scientific founder um, asked you know, a very good question, which is, you know, we know this is a very, very early sign in the in the disease process. It appears to um, to come before the deposition of amyloid. So how can we treat this problem with metabolism within the brain? If Alzheimer's disease patients have a problem metabolizing glucose, is there something we can do um, to rectify that? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer is potentially. Um, so all of us as human beings actually have a very well conserved mechanism by which to allow the brain and our tissues to function in the absence of glucose. You know, nowadays we have very ready access to, to glucose and food and carbohydrates, right? We just go downstairs and 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 and, and buy you know croissants or noodles or rice, whatever. Um, that wasn't always the case, right? As you would think about our ancient ancestors, they would have been very dependent upon hunting or on crops that could fail. And therefore there were periods of you know time when when people couldn't get food. Um, and consequently, there are periods of, of decreased glucose when the brain had to still metabolize and function, but actually they couldn't rely on um, they couldn't rely on on a ready access to glucose. And therefore, the body actually has a very clever and well conserved mechanism, whereby if glucose levels drop, we can actually switch the brain over to metabolize a different energy substrate, a different fuel, and that fuel is 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 fat. So our fat reserves are actually designed as backup fuel, like sort of fuel storage for the brain. And what happens is if um, if we go through a period of, of decreased glucose intake, so essentially we fast or we starve, then our body switches over um, and starts to break down the fats, the fatty acids from, from our fat stores. And those fatty acids are actually broken down in the liver through a process called beta-oxidation, and it releases ketone bodies. So you may have heard of ketone bodies. The predominant role of those ketone bodies is actually to provide the brain with energy. So in those at those times, the brain will switch over from using glucose to using ketones as the predominant source, and they can they can um, provide the brain with about sixty percent of its energy needs um, and restore um, normal metabolism and function. Um, and we all do this. It's completely physiological. In fact, you know, Jonathan, when you went to to sleep last night and you didn't eat for a period of twelve hours, whatever it was, your body your glucose levels would have dropped, and consequently, your um, your body would have started to enter a, 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 a mild state of ketosis because your body would have said, "I still need energy. I still need energy for my brain. My brain still needs to metabolize. I'm going to take you know my fat reserves. My fatty acids get broken down in my liver, and you would have started to get a slight increase in your ketones until you woke up this morning and had your breakfast, replenished your glucose reserves, and then you would have shut off the um, the ketosis pathways within the body. So it's completely physiological." And it was this insight um, that led our, our scientific founder, Dr. Sam Henderson, to ask the question, which is, I wonder in Alzheimer's disease, 
if patients have deficient glucose um, metabolic pathways, or in some way, for some reason, they're not able to metabolize glucose, I wonder if their um, keto metabolism pathways are still intact. And I wonder if we can supplement essentially um, the metabolism within the brain with ketone bodies and restore metabolism and ultimately, um, you know, um, restore cognition um, and function in these Alzheimer's patients. And the way that we do that is by providing patients essentially with a special type of fat. It's a it's a structured lipid. Um, our active ingredient, is, uh, our API for our, for our drug is a drug called tricaprolin, which is a, a structured eight carbon medium chain triglyceride of a particular sort. Um, and that is um, the, the molecule that's the small molecule that we use as our API. And it works in exactly that way. It's taken orally. Um, it gets taken into the, uh, into the systemic circulation. And exactly the same way as it would happen physiologically, um, the, the fatty acids get broken down by the liver to produce ketones, with ultimately the aim of flooding, you know, flooding the brain with this source of, of you know, of um, fuel substrate. Um, to then provide the Alzheimer's brain with this source um, that otherwise hasn't got. Mm, interesting. Just going back to uh, you know the beginning of what you just said um, yeah. about uh, metabolism, I was just curious as I guess a, a potential patient, hopefully not <laughs> of Alzheimer's. <laughs> you, so you mentioned you know Alzheimer's can the, the onset can start when you're like 30 years old or something mm -hmm. if, if you know if indeed the median age of um, you know symptom uh, manifestation is around 60 so you know as a as a potential patient and you know since you're a doctor I, I'm just gonna take advantage of this time with you uh, do a little, oh, okay I get it <laughs> <laughs> medicine <laughs> yeah just curious um, if it's related to metabolism and things like that you know every time I see a doctor um, a lot of healthcare professionals say exercise is really good um you know for health so has there been any studies or evidence uh to show like people who exercise more have a reduced risk of alzheimer's or what what what, what can be done to kind of lower our risks of alzheimer's or dementia yeah it, it, it's a really good question and and the short answer to that is is absolutely yes so there has been over, really relatively recently, so over the course of the last five years, there has been a building, you know, body of evidence to show that lifestyle interventions um, can, you know, can significantly reduce um, the risk um, of Alzheimer's disease. So there's one particular, you know, pivotal study called the Finger Study, which was conducted in Finland. Um, which showed exactly that, which is you know, through regular exercise and dietary interventions that you can significantly lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease for exactly the reasons you said. Um, and you think about, you know, and, and, you know, to the extent that a lot of people recognize that Alzheimer's disease is, is ultimately a disease of, you know, where you're getting, you have dysfunctional metabolism um, and particularly of glucose, much like diabetes. In fact, some people have coined the phrase that you know, Alzheimer's disease is almost like type three diabetes of the brain. So you have this sort of um, this, this glucose insensitivity or inability to, to metabolize glucose in a similar way um, to diabetes. And in mm -hmm. fact, diabetes is one of the significant risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. We see a, a direct correlation between diabetic patients um, and, and Alzheimer's risk. Um, so it's uh, it definitely related. So, you know, much like we your, your doctor would advise you for cardiovascular risk or diabetic risk, exactly the same applies to Alzheimer's disease. The challenge of, is, of course, is that it's uh, it's not easy to make these diet, you know, these lifestyle interventions. But there's definitely, you know, a good body of evidence for that. 
Mm, okay, interesting. Uh, sorry for digressing. I was just curious. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So you've got to exercise more in that and eat healthy, Jonathan. That's a, a lesson to us all. <laughs> okay, yes, doctor. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. So let's move on to, um, you know, talk a bit about your pipeline. Um, you mentioned that um, there's glucose uh, impairment in, in the yeah. brain. And, you know, one of, one of the products I see on your pipeline is called Axana. Is that right? So that's like a, uh, um, what would be categorized as a medical food, um, and it's it's commercialized in the U.S. I believe. So, can you tell us a bit about Axana and what 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 is a medical food exactly? Yeah. So, our, so you're exactly right. I mean, we 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 uh, we have Axonas, and we're also building out our pipeline um, in, in other directions as well. But so, but let me let me tell you a little bit about Axona. So, having recognized what we just said, which is in Alzheimer's disease, there is this there's this very long prodromal period. Um, where patients um, have you know, the early sort of biomarkers and pathophysiology occurring within the brain up to 30, you know, 30 years before the manifestation of the disease. Mm-hmm. So we ask an interesting question, um, which is, you know, I think it's well, well recognized now by, by most companies that work in the space and most scientists that a, the, there is a need to intervene early. Right. So if you think about the way the disease um, progresses, um, there is something happening within the brain, whether or not that's amyloid or tau or, or metabolic deficit, that also ultimately gives rise to a sort of neurotoxic cascade and ultimately sees the uh, the cells die. So and, and ultimately, by the time you know those patients get to you know, 65, 70 years old, those cells, you know, such a, a critical mass of those cells have died that they manifest as Alzheimer's disease. So consequently, you need to get in there early to treat this disease. Um, because ultimately, once cells are dead, there's very little that can be done to to restore those those cells. So you need to get in early, um, and and that could be early, as in you know the fifth decade of life. Well, that could be early, as in your fourth and fifth decade of life. And this, and when you think about how to do that, we recognise that that's going to be very challenging from a pharmaceutical perspective. You think about some of the drugs that have been in development. We have you know relatively toxic you know, monoclonal antibodies that are in development. You know, some of these drugs can cost you know, tens of thousands of dollars. They have very significant you know, safety and toxicity profiles. They're given through intravenous infusion. These are, you know, these are very serious you know, pharmaceutical agents. And consequently, um, when we think about treating patients in a relatively asymptomatic state early in the disease course, you know, we think that presents a very, um, a very interesting challenge. Now, conversely, our drug, which as we established, is, is a small molecule lipid. Um, the safety profile, as you would imagine, from a fat um, is very um, benign. And therefore, we see an interesting opportunity to intervene early and to position this product um, as a in a category other than as a pure pharmaceutical. Um, still equally evidence-based and um, you know, with the same body of, of evidence and clinical trials behind it to support efficacy, but the ability to position this um, for earlier patients. And that's exactly what Axona is. So um, Axona, which as you quite rightly said, is, is only available in, available in the US is a medical food. A medical food is a category that, that only exists within the US and it is for um, a, very, a very precise category of um, treating uh, or, or managing the nutritional requirements associated with the disease and, and in this case for Alzheimer's disease. Consequently, um, that's where Axona is, um, is, is positioned in, in the US. Um, we are now doing some work with some partners in Asia 
to um, bring Exona over to Asia uh, and allow it to be available to to patients in uh, in parts of Asia as well. We've launched in in Korea um, and we're we're launching in some other territories in Asia this year. Mm, okay. Yeah, interesting. Because when I hear the word drug, I I just think of um, you know pills that we take when we realize that we are sick or are getting sick. Um, but in terms of medical food, um, and as you as you mentioned, you know if if we start early, uh, then maybe we can um, potentially alter the course of our um, you know disease. So, but one question I had was, um, you know, if in Alzheimer's the symptoms don't really show up until years later. You know, how how do you know who should be taking, um, you know, medical food or? Or any treatment no. for that. No, it's, it's, it's a good question. But I think the same applies to many diseases. You think about um, high cholesterol, you think about, um, you know, blood pressure, uh, high blood pressure. There are a number of, um, you know, the number of things that at least the patient themselves are not you know, not apparent, but it requires, you know, a physician or some sort of intervention to, um, or some sort of diagnostic to, to quantify it and, and, and ultimately, you know, follow the progression. Um, it's the same with, it's the same with, you know, with Alzheimer's disease. In the earlier stages, so the stage before Alzheimer's disease, there's a, a condition called mild cognitive impairment. So the definition really of mild cognitive impairment is the patients have a milder form of cognitive um, deficit. Um, but they're not functionally impaired. So they have memory problems, but it's not affecting, you know, um, to a large extent their, their day-to-day lives. So in, these, in, these, in the case of these patients, um, you can, you know, you can um, do cognitive tests. Um, the, you know, this is what neurologists um, and, um, you know, do. They do these very complex um, uh, cognitive tests to test different areas of, of cognition within and, and, and modalities of cognition within the brain. Um, and ultimately, you can you can score these and, and tell patients um, you know whether or not they need you know need to have some sort of intervention, be that lifestyle or otherwise. Um, and then you can follow their progress over time to see if they have uh, they've improved, they've plateaued, of course, or getting worse. Mm, okay, I see. So the, uh, the other piece of us as well was um, was about pipeline and and um, you know that's uh, other than Axona, uh, one of the things that we as a company um, chose to do in, in, in 2018, it was part of the reason we moved to Asia, was actually to build out a, uh, a pipeline of drugs um, and, and therapeutics within, within the sort of neuro, neurology and brain health space. As, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, oncology in particular has, has really seen the lion's share of, of innovation, um, definitely investment dollars um, and, and new drug approvals over the course of the last um, couple of decades. Um, and, you know, we see neurology as being the sort of the next oncology, if you like. You know, there's a huge unmet clinical need. Um, about 80% of patients are either unserved or, or underserved by the current drugs that exist. Over the course of the last ten years or so, we've had you know very significant insights into into the sort of underlying mechanisms within a number of neurological diseases, um, and therefore I think you know our feeling is that we're at a tipping point in neurology, um, and therefore part of our you know part of our strategy we're very fortunate to have a very well progressed Alzheimer's program, um, but part of our pro uh, part of our strategy is to, is to build out a, a pipeline and also a portfolio of neurology drugs. Um, to which we can lend our capabilities in terms of, you know, global d- drug development. So we started that process, you know, with regards to our Tricaplin program, which is the program which is um, entering phase three now for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we are uh, we're building out 
know, we're using that compound in other neurological diseases. So there's good evidence for the role of tricaprolin um, and the role of ketosis in some other neurological diseases. So we just started a study in, in migraine. Um, we're doing some work in, in epilepsy as well, um, all of which have you know, a good scientific basis for the role and a similar mechanism to that of Alzheimer's disease of providing an, an alternative energy substrate to the brain, um, but also you know, good evidence for the role of, of you know, tricaprolin with, and, and ketones within, within those two diseases. So we started, um, we started those programs. And we're also actively in licensing um, other compounds as well and, and you know, looking at a number of different assets um, that we can in license and either develop for global rights or particularly leverage our presence in, in Asia Pacific um, and take rights for um, for Asia, partnering with maybe you know a company in, in the West that will be developing for for other parts of the world, and we can handle the uh, the development and, and regulatory work in in Asia Pacific. That's great. You know, speaking of clinical trials, I'm just wondering, um, you know, if, since you're entering into a phase three, how long does that um, setup take uh, in terms of moving to phase? two and into phase three and uh, have you seen any difference working with uh, regulators here in Asia compared to the US or other places? Yeah um, so so I mean moving so, we, so you're exactly right we are planning our phase three at the moment um, our phase three study will take um, the first of our phase three study will take about about three years. Um, it's fairly standard in terms of design. Um, you know, there's, really, there's very well-defined endpoints that you need to use for Alzheimer's disease. And given the complexity of the disease and, and the clinical trials, which we've already established, you really don't want to stray too too far from those. So in terms of the design, it, it, it's fairly vanilla, but they are complex studies. Um, they involve, you know, um, many, many sites globally, um, that's required both to, you know, um, to allow you to recruit that many patients, but also to allow you for um, your global registration. You want to, you want to have it um, conducted in, in key geographies. So it's, uh, it is, you know, there's a, there's an awful lot of work that goes into planning that study. And really, what we've been doing over the course of the last few years has been, you know, um, has been designing that study making sure that we've de-risked it as much as possible from a clinical perspective. So answering all the possible questions we can to make sure that when we start this study, it will be successful, but also de-risking it from an operational perspective. We already mentioned our move to Singapore. We now have a core clinical operations team based here. Um, but as well as that, um, so you know that allows us to make sure that from an operational perspective, we're doing everything we can and, and we're going to make sure when we start this study, it is, um, it is um, optimally executed. Mm, okay, interesting. So, you know, now that we are in the midst of a pandemic, it's, it's very strange because usually, um, you know, I, I ask, you know, our, our guests, you know, how can people, you know, follow you or find you at conferences but now you know interestingly there's no there there really no events or conferences to attend to you know in person right now so you know have you been you know doing webinars or talking to potential investors or stakeholders through you know online or zoom or um we have been a lot yeah and it's interesting um i i i've sort of been through uh a change in mindset and having spoken to a number of peers and, and colleagues, I think um, a lot of people have been through this, which is an initial resistance to it. Obviously, it was a very significant change to the way we normally do business, mm-hmm. um, particularly when looking at partners or investors. And there's importance for that, you know, for the for the connection. And, you know, I would spend uh, 
a disproportionate amount of my time normally on an airplane going out to meet with people. Um, but I think, you know, due to the nature of the situation we're in and, um, you know, we've all resided to the fact that we have to do things through, you know, through Zoom or video conference, um, both on our side, but ultimately, you know, partners and investors, they need to they need to partner and they need to invest. So, you know, I think everybody recognizes that it is the new norm. Um, and, and consequently, it's it's been very, you know, it's been very effective. Um, and, you know, of course, travel is hugely inefficient. So actually, it, it has been it has been good. And, and, you know, what we've seen is an evolution of things where, you know, now you can have, you know, very quick calls and check ins with people um, very easily, you know, 20 minute mm-hmm. chance here and there, just sort of touch base, you know, see if everything is necessary, follow up very easily, which, of course, would not normally be possible if you've got a partner or, or a uh, or a uh, an investor the other side of the world um, because you're not going to travel for a, for a 20 minute meeting. So I think it's a uh, it's been very interesting and I think it's definitely had value that we will take um, to the beyond um, and the post COVID era. Mm, yeah, I guess one of the the issues um, you know in, in COVID nineteen is um, you know a lot of, a lot of companies have been disrupted in terms of how they are engaging in potential patients um, and the uh, you know, local community. So for uh, Saracen, has there been an impact on how you are engaging the, say, the Alzheimer's community in Singapore? And um, are there any ways to kind of um, continue the work in that area? Yeah, it's it's definitely been it's definitely been something we've been very aware of. So we work very closely um, with you know patient advocacy groups in particular, as you said, Alzheimer's Association, be that in the mm-hmm. US um, or in in Singapore or in territories in which we're we're involved. And you know, it, it's I think we recognise it's particularly difficult for Alzheimer's patients. Alzheimer's patients. You know, by definition, they are the most at risk. They're elderly, and therefore, as we know, the elderly are most at risk of COVID. Um, what we know, you know, Alzheimer's patients, generally speaking, they're, they're, you know, of course, they're very easily confused. And what they need more than anything else is they need to have routine. Um, they need to have, you know, um, otherwise it just will answer their overall confusion. So I think that, you know, what we've seen over the course of the last few months is that routine has um, has gone out the window. Um, and all of us are seeing, you know, a, a, a sort of a deviation from what is normal. Uh, and whilst that's difficult for us, it's, it's particularly difficult for Alzheimer's patients and particularly their carers. I mean, often, um, the biggest or one of the biggest burdens for Alzheimer's disease um, families is, is the burden on, on carers, right? They are often 24-7, you know, caring for these individuals. Unfortunately, they're often the spouses um, of these individuals. So, um, you know, they're elderly themselves and, and often have, you know, care needs of their own. And to then, you know, say that carers can't come in or friends and family, you know, can't um, can't come into the household as, easy, as easily as they could before, or maybe you know get access, have access to uh, to shopping or food or whatever else is necessary. Um, we recognise that's been incredibly difficult for Alzheimer's communities, and and we've seen Alzheimer's associations and patient advocacy groups, you know, really sort of um, try to build awareness around this and 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 do some fundraising and, and educational pieces, and we've we've tried to do our piece as well to uh, to support that effort. Um, but it is a very challenging time, no question. Mm. Okay, great. Yeah. So final question, you know, before we sign off, how can people, you know, follow uh, Saracen and support your work? Yeah. So I think there's there's two pieces of that. I think the first one is I think it's very important, you know, given the uh, the significant Im- you know um, impact that Alzheimer's disease can have on on healthcare systems and ultimately society and 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 ourselves. I think it's very important that you know people take an interest in this space. 
um, and you know recognize that there we are making significant advances, um, and that this is not this is not a uh, you know a sort of a dead end. Um, so you know really encourage people to sort of take an interest, be that investors to to take an interest in the space. Or be that you know scientists and um, and and pharmaceutical companies. With regards to the work that Saracen's doing, um, we're fairly you know we're very active um, on at um, investing you know um, at conferences. Be that scientific ones, our clinical and scientific teams are active and, and presenting, but also on the uh, on the more sort of business meetings, very actively involved now in 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 asia and in particularly china as well where which as we mentioned is is a critical market for us so you know very keen to to have people reach out to us always looking for opportunities to collaborate and partner um and uh yeah so we'd love to hear from people that take an interest and, and please take a look at our our website um which is uh, www.saracen.com mm, that is great yeah so thanks for your time, Charles. Um, looking forward to more great news coming out of Saracen, uh, be it the Phase Three or uh, other, you know, new uh, in licensing programs or other research uh, programs that um, will come out of Asia. Great. Thank you very much for your time, Jonathan. Thanks, Charles. And that is it for this episode. If you want to support the Asia Healthcare Podcast and the content that we're making here, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. And tell your friends and colleagues to check it out as well. A second thing you can do is to let me know what you think about the show and also give me suggestions for what topics to cover next or who would be a great guest on the show. And you can do that on Twitter at jchanpharma or email me directly at jchanpharma.com at gmail.com special thanks to Jeff Kaler Music for providing the music to the show you can find more about his music production at jeffkaler.com see you next time cause once upon a time he wandered all alone until the crew showed up one day you felt awkward insecure as they pulled the toll down I don't want to be the subject of your teenage show So in TV, I'll
Got to be 